This is Dalio's Principles, a philosophical examination. The unofficial podcast companion for Ray Dalio's book, Principles. This podcast will deeply explore the book and principles. The podcast is hosted by Micah Bays and John Sextro. Micah has a PhD in philosophy and has taught numerous college philosophy courses, including The Meaning of Life, Ethics, and Reason and Argument. John shares his perspective from years of experience trying to live out Ray's principles in his life and work. I'm Micah Bays. And I'm John Sextro, and we are back here talking about the book Principles by Ray Dalio. This episode, we're covering chapter two, and the title of chapter two is Crossing the Threshold. So we had uh, called to adventure in chapter one. Now we're moving on to, to crossing the threshold. What's the, did you have any sense for what the threshold here was, Micah, that he was crossing? Actually, no. No? <laughs> Sorry, I, I didn't actually. Um, I, I think I have an idea, but I'll, I'll save it for later, and then I'll point out where I think he's crossing that threshold. Okay. So in, in chapter two, uh, Dalio talks more about his life. We sort of left him in chapter one where he was um, a, maybe a, a, an early teenager and uh, caddying on the golf course, and he had just uh, invested in the Northeastern stock. And now we're catching up with him a little bit later in life. He's, he's um, graduating, about to graduate high school, it seems like. He's getting into college. He goes to a, a college on sort of a probationary period, but finds out that he's pretty good at college. He wasn't too good at grade school, middle school, and uh, high school, but he's pretty good at college because he gets to do study things that he's interested in. Yeah, I remember that feeling going to college. Uh, now, of course, you still had some of your standard courses that were required, your gen eds or whatever. But uh, I remember just looking at the course catalog and thinking, oh, wow, I can just pick what I'm going to study. This is awesome. But I'm also kind of a nerd. So look at all, look at this whole list of things I can, I can do. And of course, you see like 15% of the things that you want to take. It sounds like Dalio wanted to stay away from languages. He didn't want to have to have any foreign language requirements. So he found finance which had zero foreign language requirements. <laughs> and that was one of the things he said attracted him. But there were some other things that he got into, Micah. And uh, you, talk, you, you mentioned some before about the Beatles and, and meditation. What, was, what do you think that was all about? Yeah, so I thought it was kind of interesting. He mentioned that as a result of the Beatles going over to India and um, encountering transcendental meditation, meditation uh, Dalio himself got interested in transcendental meditation uh, now, interesting thing, I, he doesn't talk about this here, but later in the book he does. Uh, when I think of transcendental meditation, I've always taken it to be a spiritual practice related with a religion, but Ray is not religious and he sees it as a, I would say, a non-religious practice. Um, but he kind of talks about some of the science behind it as far as, you know, what meditating, could, what kind of effect it can have on your brain. And so he was saying that can really help you identify some ideas that maybe you wouldn't otherwise be able to identify. Just uh, it helps your brain process the information that's already in there, but it processes it in a way that makes it uh, more clear to you or more obvious to you. Um, so that was interesting to me. What do you think about that? Do you ever meditate? Have you ever meditated? Uh, no. <laughs> I'll share that um, 
I have an on again, off again mindfulness meditation practice that is different than transcendental. The way I understand transcendental meditation, because I researched it, is that you have to have uh, you have to have a consultant, so to speak, that sort of spends a lot of time with you, and then they give you a mantra, what they call a mantra, and there is, I don't know, there's there's a there's a whole a formula that they use to come up with what your mantra should be. Yours will be different from mine. Then will be different from Dalio's. I'm not sure if Dalio did this in this case, because I think it's fairly expensive uh, to get your mantra. <laughs> uh, but yeah, the, so the act of anyway, the act of like sitting quietly for me and focusing on nothing, maybe other than breathing or something does a lot for me to help me just clear my mind, be mindful of, what's going on around me and sort of slows down my, my lizard brain and lets that higher level, higher functioning part of my brain, uh, be, be more available to act throughout my day. So, um, I, I have seen some benefits from that. So Ray, um, Ray, Ray starts his meditation and then later on it's, uh, it's the start of the Vietnam war now. And he's, he's of age to be drafted. He's about to go into college or he's already in college. He's, he's maybe a fresh freshman in college and uh, he ends up getting a medical exemption from the military by, uh, through the help of his father who he gets, his father takes him to the doctor and says, let's see if you have a medical, get him end up getting a medical, a medical exemption. And it ends up that he, that Dalio has hypoglycemia. And so he does end up getting an exemption, but seems like he later in life feels sort of guilty about that. Ray mentioned that with the respect to Vietnam, yeah, he was, he's conflicted about his um, missing out or his not going to war uh, on the fact that he got that exemption. Uh, I found it interesting because he said he feels guilty for not doing his part. And, you know, obviously there's various views about Vietnam, but, you know, quite a few people think that, you know, we shouldn't have been there in the first place. And so, if you think we shouldn't be there, then you probably wouldn't feel guilty for not doing your part because you think, yeah, we shouldn't have been doing anything anyways. Sure. Um, now, maybe you could feel guilty that other people had to go and you didn't, right? What they call kind of survivor syndrome, which it's a little bit different, you know, in the sense of he didn't go and survive war. But nonetheless, you know, he survived that era uh, where maybe some of his friends didn't. Uh, I don't know if he talks about that, but he didn't go, any, go into any detail on on losing close friends or family or any of that through the course of the time. Uh, it seemed like, it seemed like maybe it was sort of a revelation to him, uh, not in the moment, but after the moment, but it wasn't clear as to how close to the moment he, he had the revelation that what had really happened was that his father sort of helped him dodge, dodge the draft, so to speak. And, and maybe that was where some of that, feeling of guilt came in was that he would have, he might've been okay if he hadn't gone just out of sheer happenstance. But the fact that his dad sort of helped him figure, get the, you know, get the exemption um, made him have some feelings of guilt and, and loss and remorse. Right. Okay. So the, the war continues on and then we get to a point where uh, there's starting to be some talk about disconnecting the, uh, the currency, the U S currency, the dollar from the gold standard. And I remember hearing about this in uh, history classes and in, in finance classes myself. Um, 
and there was the whole concept of a dollar can be exchanged for some amount of gold, whatever, whatever the standard for that was, but that there was a point in time where the, the, the government decided to disconnect from, from that standard, took us off of the gold standard and the repercussions of, of, to the markets based on that decision. And I think Ray was, was thinking, Dalio was thinking one way. He was thinking that coming off of the gold standard was going to have a very negative impact, right? Yep. And he found out sort of otherwise when he went into his, went into his summer job that he had. So he found out that uh, it actually had a rising tides effect on the markets and people saw it as, as an opportunity to invest and make more money. And this maybe is the beginning of where he's crossing that threshold. Micah, I think, as I, we spoke about at the beginning of the show, was what does it mean crossing the threshold? And I think this is where Ray is starting to realize that um, some of the things that seem to be common knowledge or common sense or uh, easily acceptable facts are in question and that there are patterns that are out there that are in history that uh, he talks a little bit about in a minute that, um, that can point us in different directions and, and give us more information to consider. Yeah, he says that you know, he was surprised by the fact that the stock market went up when the gold standard went away. Um, but then he goes on to say that's only because he failed to understand history. Yeah, so he says there's events that continually reoccur throughout history because of cause and effect. And so you just need to look to history uh, to figure out what types of things have various effects. And so he points out that in um, his lifetime, he hadn't seen the similar circumstances that would have led him to be able to understand what would happen when the gold uh, standard was done away with so that he could expect that the market would rise. But he says if he had looked at history prior to the time when he was alive, he could have figured that out. He could have seen there are previous cases similar to this and he could have learned what to expect. Yeah. So the, I remember uh, as a kid hearing that those who don't study history are, are, um, are destined to repeat it. And I think you had a similar thing that was posted at your school. What did, what did yours say? Yeah. So in my eighth grade class, we had a uh, little, just a little sign that was up in the classroom all year. Uh, and I'm not sure if I remember it exactly. I, had a few words that I kind of remembered from it. So I looked it up and I hope this is what it was. Uh, I looked up on the web, uh, but I think it might've been so, uh, I think it might've been studying yesterday to understand today and improve tomorrow. Um, of course, you know, my social studies teacher put it up there because, you know, all kids at that age are questioning, why do I care about history? But, and this is one of those reasons why to care. And that was, that was of course the reason for all of these statements was it was adults trying to impart to us that while you may not have had this experience for, for hundreds or thousands of years, people have been experiencing very similar things to you. Lots of similar patterns out there in the world. And, and there are things to be learned from those patterns. And this is that, I think this is that threshold that uh, Dalio is referring to with the title of the chapter where he figures out, yeah, I always knew that there were patterns out there and that there was history. And now I'm really seeing 
that I need to I need to expand the aperture of where I'm looking and considering in terms of using information from history to help me help inform how I'm how I'm looking at markets and how I'm looking at making decisions. Uh, so so from there he talks about um, sort of his his view on on business as business has always been a way to get me into exotic places, right? He mentions uh, getting to he wasn't so worried about making the money, but he really enjoyed meeting exotic people, going to exotic places, and he talks about um, getting some trips to outside of the country and those sorts of things. And that goes back to his sort of call to adventure from from chapter one, right? Having read this previously, that that quote kind of stuck out to me is, you know, seeing business as a way to go places. And uh, so, you know, last year I've been able to actually do that a little bit through my own work. Um, you know, went to Seattle for a hackathon uh, back you know, in September and I uh, had never been to Seattle. It was fantastic. And then uh, just found out this week, I'll be going to Google Cloud Next conference in San Francisco in April. Uh, so pretty excited about that. Never been, I've never been to San Francisco and so I uh, feel like I'm following Ray a little bit here using my business, uh, using business to see some places. I think that that's a benefit that we often forget about with certain jobs. Some people love having that benefit. Some maybe don't. And so it's different for everyone, of course. Um, it, it's nice to see that, that you've gotten some of those opportunities, uh, but it, it takes a certain type to really want, want to have that experience. And it really goes back to, Dalio's statement of, um, you know, good is, is better than, than terrible and, and, uh, terrible is better than mediocre because, because it's the spice of life. And I think are the flavor he says, and I think this is back to that. This is more flavor. So he was, but, but you have to also be at some, somehow you, I think you have to have a base level of like income to feel this way. So I'm certain that at this moment he had that. Yep. Well then, uh, Dalio gets into modeling the markets and modeling markets as machines. And this is a, I think a natural extension of where he's now crossed the threshold where he's very hyper aware of these patterns that are in history and he's, he's trying to start using them. And how did you see this, Micah? Yeah, I thought this was pretty interesting. Uh, yeah. Modeling markets as machines and we'll see, especially as we get into his principles later uh, as in, you know, not the book principles, but as we get into you know, the various principles he has, um, he really applies this idea of machine uh, to a lot of processes. And um, I think one of the things that maybe can help with that is that maybe demystifies something that maybe seems real nebulous and you're not really sure, like, how does this work? And you see it as almost as like a black box that you can't peer into and it can't understand. And Ray really wants to say, well, no, you know, let's just break it down. Let's look at the individual parts and then we can see how those individual parts work together. And through doing that, then, you know, you can come to have a reasonable expectation of what's going to happen as a result of that machine, right? You have a certain input, then you have a good reason to get it, a good reason to expect a particular output. Yeah. So he was talking about the commodities market. So, uh, here's going to be the relationship between livestock and meat and grain. And uh, this probably isn't too exciting to most people, but I'm from Kansas. So it kind of makes a little more sense uh, to me maybe. Uh, but 
you know, just this idea that, you know, with livestock, you could maybe determine or come to have a reasonable expectation as to the price of meat based on what's happening with grain, right? If we have a bad crop and so there's less supply of grain, it's going to cost more to feed your cows. Um, and so those costs are going to be passed on to the consumer in the form of meat prices. And that's very uh, basic. His knowledge would certainly surpass mine here, but that's a rough idea of you know what he's getting at. And it's seeming, it seems like as it, this is really sort of at his moment in time was a, a newer, um, not newer, but it was an untapped, a relatively untapped area of, of uh, finance and of trading and of market working because there, there were a lot less commodities that you could deal with. It was all real commodities, um, you know, cows, pigs, grains. And so it was sort of limited, but that uh, Dalio put a lot of early work into figuring out how to model things. And so like you, like you very, very well described, Micah, that process for figuring out grain prices and meat, working that up to meat prices, he starts to apply that. He starts to apply that in a number of different uh, areas and then becomes sort of the sought after person by companies and even by nations to come and talk about um, how to use those machines and how to use those models. And he starts to take advantage of computers to help create these models. And I think that maybe is where he starts to get his, get a real love for computers and, and see the power that they bring to him because he can, he can, he can do a lot more even with the, the limit limited computing power that he has available to him at this moment in time, at his moment in time, that he can do a lot more even with that limited computing power than he can do with, you know, his calculator and his notebook. So he gets really excited about what he sees in computers at this moment in time. Right. Yeah. And just for our audience, of course, keep in mind, right, this isn't the 2010s, right? This is the, what, the 1970s roughly that he's starting to, you know, leverage computers for his work. Um, so they had definitely a much more limited capacity than they have now, but still could do much more than just his plain old calculator could do. Absolutely. Okay. So, um, you, you wanted to comment on some of Dalio's central goals in life and I'm, I'm really interested in this. So, yeah. Um, so this is, uh, certainly the meat of the chapter for me, but just probably because of my philosophy background, uh, Ray talks about his central goals in life. Um, for him, kind of two goals. One is meaningful work and the other are meaningful relationships. Uh, so, of course, what as a good philosopher do, would do, we have to ask, well, what does he mean by meaningful work? Uh, and so, thankfully, Ray tells us. He says, for him, meaningful work is being on a mission that you are engrossed in. Um, right. Something you might say that you're just consumed by that takes a whole lot of your attention and energy and, you know, something that you really want to devote your time and energy to. Um, and then meaningful relationships. Uh, what does he mean by that? Well, he says meaningful re relationships are having relationships with people you care deeply about and who care deeply about you. Uh, so I, 
you know, for me, there was a few questions that kind of came up uh, in thinking about this. Um, so if we'll thinking back to like meaningful work, he talks about being on, on a mission that you're engrossed in. Uh, one interesting question for me is, does it matter what the mission is? Um, can, a, can work be meaningful no matter what? you're engrossed in, right? Um, so there's a, a silly example, but it, it makes a good point. Um, so John Rawls uh, was a very influential political philosopher uh, in the 20th century. And he's actually talking about well-being, which is kind of related here, but um, I'm going to use an example he gave uh, and apply it to this question of, you know, doesn't matter what mission you're on. So John Rawls asks us to consider someone who has a really strong desire to count blades of grass. Uh, I think the ex- actual example was counting bla- blades of grass uh, on Harvard's campus or something. Okay. <laughs> wow. And that's what they want to do in life, right? What they really want to do is just count blades of grass. And so in this case, what I'm going to ask is, Suppose that's someone's mission, right? Their mission, right? What they're really engrossed by is counting blades of grass. Would Ray see that as meaningful work? Um, and of course, for our audience, right? Do you think that would be something that would count as meaningful work, right? They're supposedly really engrossed in it, right? Maybe they just love going and counting each blade of grass individually, or maybe they love coming up with strategies for counting blades of grass, you know, figuring out. Oh, I'll measure this square foot, you know, pattern, see how many blades of grass are in it. And then you know, extrapolate based on how many square feet there are to how many, you know, so they could find all kinds of ways to count blades of grass, but would that really be meaningful work? And so what I'm trying to get at is it seems like maybe we want something a bit more, you might say objective than that. Something that seems like maybe the work, would need to have some kind of value that it's promoting that's increasing maybe right the easiest examples think of like charity work right um helping the poor hungry and so on you know it's easy to see how maybe that would be meaningful work because it seems like it's improving the world in some way does counting blades of grass count yeah i i, I wonder that i'd never heard heard about this uh, John Rawls and the counting blades of grass uh, example I think it's I think it's got to be per person but I also believe that um maybe there's maybe there are some standard things that that could be could fall into the category of interesting work but I think more than anything it's going to be based on a person's passions and interests and what motivates them yeah maybe it's something you know what can count as meaningful work um, is something that can vary from person to person, but even though it can vary, maybe at the base, there must be something that's objectively valuable about what you're doing, right? Maybe, right? Maybe there are various kinds of goods, various kinds of good things, good things that you can promote. And right. So maybe education is a good. And so, right. Someone who is a teacher and wants to go out and help people learn, right. Their mission is meaning or their work is meaningful because they're engrossed in it and it has objective value, right? Let's say education, someone learning um, is objectively good, right? That would be one way of life or one type of meaningful work, but uh, right. Maybe people not suffering is also a valuable thing. And so someone who goes and 
works with a charity to prevent hunger, right? They are they have meaningful work as well, but it's different. And that's because, well, they're both doing something that has objective value, but those things are just different values. Um, so even if you accept that there are objective values, that doesn't mean that everyone's life has to be cookie cutter because there are there could be various kinds of value. Yeah, I, I I accept that. I accept that as a as a truth in the universe. Okay, how's that? <laughs> Good. Okay. I mean- we operate the podcast on the value for value model. We are entirely listener supported. If you enjoy the podcast and find value in the information and entertainment you receive, you can donate to the podcast on Patreon. Go to patreon.com slash Dalio's principles and click support this podcast. There are even more ways to support the show. You can dazzle all of your friends with information learned on the show and share the show with them on social media. Also, you can review us on iTunes. It'd be awesome if you blog about it or even talked about our podcast on your very own podcast. And you can always direct your friends to our subreddit at reddit.com forward slash r forward slash Dalio's principles. And now back to the show. Well, what about when it comes to meaningful relationships? So you mentioned how, how uh, Dalio talks about, you know, he wants to have meaningful work, meaningful relationships. What do you think it means, what he means when he says deeply care about someone? So meaningful relationships, Ray says that, you know, that's having relationships, relationships with people who you care, care deeply about and who care, care deeply about you. Yeah. And yeah, there's this question about what does that mean to care deeply about them? Uh, One interesting thing that I started thinking about um, is Aristotle's talk about friendship. Hmm. And uh, this is one of the favorite things of mine that I got to teach uh, when I taught an ancient philosophy course. Um, in one of the chapters in his Nicomachean Ethics, um, which really is just a book devoted to what does it mean for the human being to be happy. Uh, he talks about the role of relationships. And one of the things he does is he kind of categorizes what he says, sees as three kinds of friendship um, that people have. And now he sees these as something that each kind of relationship is a good relationship to have, but he does think that one of these is the best kind of relationship to have. What Aristotle says when he categorizes these kinds of relationships, he says we categorize them based on the reason why you have affection for the other person or right. When you have a friendship, presumably you like the other person. And so the question for Aristotle is, well, why do you care about them? Yeah. And so he's going to say there's three categories as to why we like people. So one pleasure. Um, You're fun to be around. You're, you're, you like hanging around somebody, right? Yeah. Right. I mean, they might be funny and you know, that brings you joy being around them, right? Maybe they compliment you a lot, right? And that makes you feel good. Uh, maybe they like the same things you like. And so you just enjoy talking with them about sports or movies or whatever it is that you two have in common. But being in that relationship brings you pleasure, right? And so you might say you have affection for them because they bring you pleasure. Yeah. Okay. Uh, second category is usefulness. So someone can be useful to you. So for example, uh, I really wanted to do a podcast about Ray's principles. 
And um, so I like John, right? John, I like you just because you're useful to me, right? You have all this experience with doing podcasts and you've got podcast equipment. Um, and so I like you because, you know, I get to do a podcast now. Okay, good. Right. No, I'm just kidding, John. Um, <laughs> it's more than that. Um, good, good. And so now usefulness. I was worried. <laughs> yeah. And, and usefulness doesn't have to, that might sound like a negative thing, like you're just using somebody. Yeah. Uh, that's not his idea here, but you know, you might think of back when you were in school and you had to study for a test, you might've found another classmate who was studying as well and you could help each other and you had affection for each other because you were both useful for each other. Um, now, and again, useful, not in the sense of you're just using them without any concern or care about them. Uh, you do care about them to some degree, but ultimately in that relationship, if it's really just about the studying, it's a, relationship based on usefulness. And then the third category uh, is friendship in which the reason you're for your affection for the other person is goodness, right? Mm. So in this case, it's you recognize them as being a good person. And so the reason you like them is because they are good. And uh, the phrase Aristotle would frequently use here is virtuous, right? Um, the person is a virtuous person and that's why you like them. And according to uh, Aristotle, this is the best kind of relationship. Um, in particular, it's one where you like the other person because they're good, they're because they're virtuous, and they like you because you're good or because you're virtuous. Interesting. So he's saying, Aristotle is saying that that's the best, that's the best foundation for a relationship is based on goodness or virtue. Yes. Hmm. Yeah. And, and again, he's not saying that the other kinds of relationships are bad, but they're just not as high quality, you might say, as the one based on goodness. Okay. And so, you know, one thing I was thinking about is when Ray talks about, you know, meaningful relationships as one where you care about the person, I wonder if he has in mind, does it matter why you care about them? Right. Um, especially because he talks about, you know, enjoying doing work with people he cares about. And so does he care about them only because they're useful? I mean, he certainly doesn't say anything like that. No. But, you know, right. you might wonder that about right. someone who you work with. You care about them only to the extent that they're useful to you, right? Oh, they help our business and so on. That's really why I care about them. What exactly does Ray have in mind here? That's just kind of the question I have. That's a really deep question, of course, because it's philosophical. Uh, and they're all deep, but it's, I would, I would wonder how many, how many relationships start off because there's usefulness, shared usefulness possibly, but then they mature into something more where maybe it, it just becomes innately pleasurable to be around the person. And that goes beyond their usefulness then. And then maybe you start to learn more about them and more about their virtue uh, and not, not necessarily trying to see it as an evolution, but just imagining that evolutions and changes of the friendship, the, the friendship could grow, so to speak. Yeah. Have you been reading Nick McKean ethics lately? No, no, I, I have not. I huh. have not. Because that's what Aristotle talks about. He says, you know, you, you, don't, you can't just start off in a relationship based on goodness because, right, the first time you meet someone, you don't know them. So how could you know that they're good unless you've spent some time with them and, you know, seen how they behave in various circumstances? So very much, you know, relationships will probably typically start based on pleasure or based on usefulness, 
But then, yeah, as you get to know the other person, it can become one that's based on goodness. Yeah. So maybe, maybe some of, as you asked about Dalio and his consideration of um, how he, how he figures out uh, caring deeply and, and getting into the relationship, um, maybe they start off in a use at that useful level and then, and blossom from there. Right. Yep. Certainly. And I think one other thing, well, a couple of things here. So one, uh, just Aristotle's talk about the relationship based on goodness. Um, I think there's a couple of interesting implications from this, if it's true. Um, you know, Aristotle's not the authority on these issues, right? We might disagree with them about the nature of relationships, but if it's true, um, one of the implications is if I'm going to have the best kind of relationship, I have to be virtuous. So if I'm not virtuous, if I'm not a good person, the best kind of relationship is actually unavailable to me, mm. at least at that time, right? I have to put in some effort, presumably, to become virtuous, to become good, so I can enjoy that highest quality relationship. And then, of course, then the question is, if, if that is something I want, what does it mean to be virtuous, right? What does sure. it mean to be a good person? Uh, that's a whole longer discussion, which we won't get into here. But um, just some interesting implications, I think, of things that you then have to think about. Yeah, as you describe that, Micah, I I can sort of see flashbacks to like uh, television shows or movies where someone isn't so virtuous and they they sort of start to have a friendship with someone and and through the course of the friendship realize that man, for this to really turn into something, uh, maybe it's a, a love relationship or it's just a straight up friendship that they're like, oh, I have to, I can't continue to be this this non-virtuous person, I have to, I have to change. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Certainly like one of the common ideas might be like, Oh, I'm just too selfish. Right. I have to be able to look out for the other person's interest as well as my own. You know, if this is going to be a good relationship and that probably one aspect of being good, learning how to not just be solely focused on yourself. And, and maybe by extension that sort of starts to equate to caring deeply because I wouldn't care deeply if I was selfish. I would try to, I would try to extract as much value, usefulness from a person as I could and maybe end up discarding them. Mm -hmm. And that caring deeply is, is actually sort of a equivalent to arriving at that virtuous, um, that having the virtue. Yeah. Something to think about. Yep. And that also maybe starts to ask questions about, well, what does real happiness mean? Which I know is that's a big topic for, for philosophy and I don't know how much we can get into, but I think you wanted to talk a little bit about happiness. Yeah. Um, so one thing just kind of remind ourselves here is uh, as far as meaningful work and meaningful relationships, uh, Dalio doesn't say that that's something that we should all pursue, uh, that that should all be our goal. He seems to say, well, that's what his goals are. That's what, you know, he wants to pursue those are his goals in life is to have meaningful work and meaningful relationships. And it seems like he wants to leave it open to say, well, you know, everyone else could have different goals in life. Those aren't some objective things, which we should all be pursuing. Uh, but it does bring up this question of happiness. Um, in particular, I was thinking about, you know, this idea of money as a goal, right? When you hear that Ray is a very successful, you know, hedge fund manager uh, and maybe I guess hedge fund CEO, you might think money would have been his top priority. And interestingly, he, he rejects that. He says, no, money is not my goal in life. 
Um, yeah. So for Ray, you know, he's going to say that having meaningful work and meaningful relationships, that's what his goals in life are. Um, and the money making was only incidental. It just so happened that to have meaningful work and meaningful relationships, it turned out that he was, he had a job that was focused on money, but what he really enjoyed was working with the people to carry out that mission. Yeah. Working with the people and, and doing the, um, the math and the analytical side of things and the data gathering and, and data categorization. And it seems like those sorts of, of things were, were also uh, motivating the modeling and, and figuring out those machines, right? Those were motivating and, and maybe part of what, what made it attractive to him. Right. And, you know, one interesting thing that um, he says is that it doesn't make sense for money to be a goal in life uh, as far as like, an ultimate goal of ours. And he says, because if you think about it, money is really only an instrumental good, right? It's only a means to something else. So you want money, not for its own sake, but you want money for what it can buy. It's a very key point in, in his thinking. Yeah. Um, and so that again, made me think of Aristotle. Uh, Aristotle talks about three common views of happiness. So in the Nicomachean ethics, Aristotle's trying to figure out what is the nature of happiness for human beings. Um, and he, he does think happiness, like if our, our general description of it is going to be the same for everybody, for every human being, because we're all of the same species. And he says, we're going to try and figure it out what the correct view of happiness is. We'll start with what the kind of common views are. Um, and so he says, there's, seems to be three common ideas about what the good life is. So there's the life of pleasure, right? Um, who's opposed to pleasure? <laughs> uh, a second view about the good life is what he calls the life of honor. And in particular, he means like the political life. Um, now politics for him might be in, might've been a little bit different than us. Um, Aristotle it, that is. Yes. Yeah, yeah. For Aristotle. Right. Right. I'm and, guessing there were still terrible people in politics then as well. I'm sure. Yes. Um, uh, but part of the idea is, you know, you're serving your society, um, and making it better, but you're being honored as a result of it. And then the third life, uh, which Aristotle does think is the truly happy life is, uh, the life of contemplation or the life of understanding, right? Really understanding the way the world is, um, which you can expect a philosopher might say that. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> Easy for him. Right. Now, he gives us some arguments as to why that's true. Okay. We won't go into that today. Uh, we'll need a whole semester probably. Um, <laughs> but uh, what he does rule out is the life of money making. And he gives two reasons. One, which is the same as uh, Ray's, and that's that money is just instrumentally valuable. And the second thing is the life of money making, as he calls it, is kind of forced on us. It's, you know, it just so happens that, hey, we have to have money to get the things we want, but that's not what we would choose, right? If we could, we'd love to not have to worry about money and then just go do all the things or get all the things that we want. Sure. Yeah, um, absolutely. So it's not forced on. So it's forced on us. So we wouldn't want the life of money making. This reminds me of something that I read and I can't remember the source and I, if I find it, maybe I'll include it as part of uh, the published material along with the show was that there have been studies that have been done in the past um, year or two, and they, they repeat the study fairly frequently where they're determining in U.S. dollars what is the, the 
amount of money you need to make to quote unquote be happy. And I appreciate the in quotes happy. Thank yeah, you. yeah. I, I well the the important part was that's that's um the happiness of course is going to be assessed by each person and how they what they equivocate to happy. Uh, but they they figured out that there's and I think in U.S. dollars today in 2019 I actually think it was in 2018 that somewhere around making around 70 ish thousand dollars a year is the point at which money provides you with the maximum amount of possible happiness that money itself can provide and that the the pursuit of more money beyond that level does not have a dramatic impact on your feelings of overall happiness. What is said there is very important from the perspective of what money can buy. So the the common thinking there would be that that's enough money in your life that in, in a yearly basis to allow you to get the things you want to get, like eating out occasionally and maybe taking a vacation occasionally and those sorts of things uh, in order to exchange that money for the other things that are really making you happy. Right. And well, uh, I don't think Ray mentions it in this chapter, but I think later chapters he'll address this. You know, he talks about how, yeah, once you have so much money, any more money uh, won't make your life any better. In fact, it might actually make it worse. So uh, considering the chapter overall, Micah, did you find some things that you thought were maybe uh, becoming possible inconsistencies in terms of Adalio's views on life and happiness and friendship and all of those things. Yeah. Um, so, you know, on the one hand, right, we talked about, I think in the intro uh, episode about how uh, for that Ray, he doesn't want to tell us how to live. He doesn't want to tell us what our goals should be. Um, and that's why he talks about those kind of three steps to getting what you want out of life. He says, first off, figure out what you want Two, figure out what's true. And then three, figure out, you know, what you're going to do about it. But that first part, figure out what you want, he seems to indicate that, hey, what you want can be anything that you want it to be, right? There's no restrictions on what that is. It's entirely open to you. Um, so on the one hand, it seems like he has what you might, what you might call a desire-based account of the good life, that, hey, getting the good life is just getting whatever it is that you happen to want. Um, and it, it doesn't matter what you want. The fact that you want it, getting it is good for you. <laughs> Um, now we can take into some account some like false beliefs about maybe how to get it or something like that. But once you figure out whatever your true desires are, getting it is good for you. But then on the other hand here, um, you know, when he talks about money, right, he talks about money not having any intrinsic value. It's purely instrumental. And so he seems to be saying what you pursue in life should have intrinsic value. And so now it seems like he's saying there's some objective values and what it makes sense to pursue in life are these things that have intrinsic value. Because um, on the one hand, if you have a desire-based account, if what you really want in life is money, then according to that account of the good life, you should pursue it, right? Pursue money and that is the good life for you. Isn't that maybe a superficial view though of of a deeper desire for other things like stability in your life and, and, uh, and safety and like Maslow's hierarchy of needs. You, you want money because it's the thing you exchange for 
security and safety and food and shelter and all of those things as opposed to just the the acquisition of paper and coins, fiat. Right. Well, so, I mean, it comes down to what kind of a view we have about the good life. If it's desire-based, then, hey, if money is really the thing that you care about, then that's the good life for you. And giving it some kind of objective account of the good life, um, then, yeah, we might say, well, ultimately you want money because of these other objective values. Um, or you could even say that someone who thinks, right, you could, you could accept the desire-based account and say, well, some people could just be mistaken in thinking that what they really want is money, right? Maybe they just have false beliefs. What they really desire is, let's say, stability or um, the ability to go out and, you know, go out to eat or whatever. And so it's really not the money, but they just confusingly are thinking about things such that they think it's the money they care about. right? Um, and so there is some kind of, you might say, sanitation of our desires or our beliefs that might need to come into play okay. to figure out what you really want. Okay. For me, it's the question of, does, does Ray really think there are certain objective values we should be pursuing in life? Or is it really truly, hey, you can figure out whatever it is you want in life. Um, does he have a desire-based account or an objectively, you might say some kind of objective account of the good life? Just something to think about. Well, that almost sounded like a point to ponder there, Micah. So why don't we go ahead and close up the episode by, by giving our listeners our points to ponder for resulting from this episode. Point to ponder number one, if you had unlimited money, what would your goal or goals in life be? Right, so I think that might help isolate what you really ultimately care about, right? And um, of the things you currently care about, how much of that is forced on you because you want money and you think, well, this career or something is going to help me get more money so I can pursue other things. And so you might really care about, you think you care about your job a lot or care about what you're doing, but maybe it's, you know, something else that you really care about. And so that second part, I think is really the most, maybe the most important part in what you're pondering, asking for folks to ponder there is, if it's not forced upon you, because there are, there, there maybe are so many of those that we just sort of forget about having a job and getting up in the morning and those sorts of things. Right. So what are, what are those so things? Yeah. yeah. Good. Let's see. Point to ponder number two. Why do your friends care about you? Uh, not necessarily suggesting sending out a survey to them, but <laughs> you know, just as you think about your friends, why is it, do you think that they care about you? Why do they want to be around you? And so on. Um, and of course, the other side of that question is, why do you care about your friends? What is it that you find valuable? Is it just the pleasure they bring to you? Is it their usefulness? Is it their virtue, their goodness? Uh, or is it something else, perhaps? Sure. And that seems like overall just uh, in innately, intrinsically useful, a useful analysis, useful information to consider. And then maybe you're figuring out, okay, well, am I, do I need to uh, consider taking a friendship to another step or, well, I don't, I don't know. I guess there's, there's a lot of philosophical questions you have to then ask yourself. Sure. So make sure you're ready for, <laughs> make sure you're ready for going deep on, on uh, thinking about your life. Good. Those are two good ones. I only had one to add this week, Micah, and mine is um, less a thing to uh, a question to ask and, and more of something maybe to, to start to do or to look for in your life. And, and be, we talked about 
Ray sort of cross, crossing that threshold here and, and noticing those patterns and starting to take note of them and, and de- develop ways to deal with those various patterns. And, and my suggestion is for you to start to do the same is to look around in life for those patterns that you've experienced. And as you're, as you're dealing with repeating situations in your life, maybe considering starting to jot down how you go about dealing with those things. And that will, that very much foreshadows for, for much later in the book as, as we start to do that more and more. Okay. So those are uh, our points to ponder for chapter two. And that concludes chapter two. Thanks for listening, Micah. Thanks for being here. You bet. Thank you, John. Thanks for listening. Let's keep the conversation going on our subreddit, Dalio's Principles at reddit.com. The subreddit is Dalio's Principles, all one word. Join us to interact with a community of like-minded individuals.